You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Well, I invite you to return to Galatians chapter 1. So we look at verses 1 through 9. Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Sometimes 10 is concluded in this particular passage. Verse 10 is kind of a transition verse. I think it could equally belong to verses 1 through 9, as well as verses 11 and onward to the end of the chapter. But for this morning, we're going to stop at verse 9. Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Page 972, if you're using the church's Bible. Thank you. I think everybody's found their spot. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed." Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you and praise you, Father, for your goodness to us and giving us your word. And we pray, Father, that you'd be pleased to teach us from your word uh, this morning, Father. We pray that, Father, you would open your word to our hearts and open our hearts, Lord, uh, to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm thankful for the excitement uh, to study the book of Galatians. Some of you have come to me and said, when are we going to start Galatians? And uh, over and over again, I've said, well, we're going to start after, um, after Easter. I didn't really want to get this started and then take a couple, you know, do two messages and then have to take a couple weeks off for Palm Sunday and for Easter and return. Even though we are getting this started, we're going to be having two messages on it. And then on the 30th, I'm not going to be here because some of you are already aware of this. Um, I'm going to be officiating a baptism service at Faith Community Church on on um, the 30th of this month. Uh, Pastor Tony Callie is going to come down and take my place while I go to Faith Community Church. And I'm very excited to be baptizing six people at Faith Community Church. So this is really, really uh, exciting. And um, um, we're, we would like your prayers uh, uh, for that. Faith Community Church right now is without a pastor, so... I'm just kind of stepping in to do this uh, for them. So we're going to have two messages, then we're going to take a break, but it's only for one Sunday, then we'll be returning. But um, And I'm not going to spend our time this morning doing a long, extended introduction. I usually don't like to do that when I'm introducing a new series, because two reasons. One, long introductions don't have a tendency to feed us very well. Um, It gives you lots of information, but it doesn't really feed your soul. Secondly, if you miss the first message, you missed the entire introduction. So what I'd rather do is just introduce as we go along. A lot of the themes we're going to go through really quickly. Someone might say, well, that theme, that's a huge theme, or this theme, that's a huge theme. 
as we go as we go through these, you're going to see that. I'm going to point them out to you, and the answer is yes. We could spend all morning actually on just verse one of this text. Uh, we're going to go through this kind of quickly because I want to have some time to look at verses six through nine and discuss this the the uh, subject of exclusivity. I don't know how many have heard that word before, exclusivity. I mean, just a few of you. I figured it'd be something that's pretty new to most of us. Um, and hopefully when we leave here, we'll know a little bit of something about exclusivity. Believe it or not, you know a lot more about that word than you realize. You just might not know what it's called. Uh, when we start discussing it, I think it's going to resonate. It's a really important um, concept, especially as we think about how we're going to minister to uh, people who are around us, whether it be our family members or whether it be, um, you know, people in the workplace. Um, so I want to have some time for that subject of exclusivity. These other subjects are going to come up as we go through the letter, and we're going to have plenty of opportunity to touch on them. Um, if you look at the first verse there, the very first word is Paul. And uh, he's making it really clear. He is the author uh, of the book of Galatians. Uh, skeptics are always pointing at all kinds of things and always kind of challenging all kinds of things. But the author, Paul, Paul's authorship of the book of Galatians, is, it's been challenged a little bit, but not very much. It's pretty clear that Paul wrote this letter. Um, and he states as much. He says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Now, if you get a number of commentaries out on Galatians, especially commentaries that will have a little bit of an introduction to Galatians, you'll notice that there's a lot of ink spilt on this greeting and how it is so different from all of the other greetings of Paul's letters. And it, some of this discussion is useful, but some of it I just want to caution us about because this is probably Paul's very first letter that makes it into the New Testament. If it's not the first, it's one of the first Possibly written as early as 48 A.D., which that takes you within 20 years of the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, if I write you one letter, you, you have one letter to make a reference. If I write you two letters, now you have two letters. You could compare both of my letters, maybe start to see a little bit of style in my writing. But as I continue to write you letters, by the time you get to the sixth or seventh letter, only then are you going to be able to say, wow, okay, this letter is unusual. Uh, this latest letter that Rick wrote is a lot different than all the other letters. So uh, that's the case here. I don't want to make too much of this because this is probably the first letter that Paul writes or maybe the second letter that Paul writes. So let's always keep that in the background when we're comparing these greetings. But here is something that is really clear that we need to hold on to, and that is the abruptness of this. Notice how abrupt this is. Paul is like cutting right to the chase. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Now, there's an abruptness here where it's almost like you can see Paul pushing hard on his pencil as he's writing or pushing hard on his pen as he's writing here. You know, Paul, an apostle, not from man nor through man, but from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why is that? Well, because Paul is being challenged. It's the nature of this letter. It's the nature of why Paul is writing. Paul has planted churches. He has left. Now other teachers have come in and begun to distort what Paul has said. 
And of course, this is going to inevitably mean challenging Paul's authority. Let's suppose the Apostle Paul planted Tri-State Community Church. And we all sat here, listened to Paul for 18 months or so, a year, 18 months. And then Paul leaves. He goes on to plant other churches. And these other teachers come in and they begin to teach something. And we're listening to them and we're thinking, that doesn't seem right. I mean, and, and we raise our hands and we say, hey, just a point of clarification. I hear you saying A, B, and C. Is that correct? And they say, yeah, A, B, and C. Well, so, well, wait a second. Now, Paul taught us D, E, and F. Now, what is the false teacher inevitably going to have to say? He might brush it off at the start and say, well, there's a way to reconcile this and keep going. But as he keeps going, more and more of us are going to raise our hands. And it's going to necessitate at some point where he's going to have to start challenging Paul's authority. He's going to have to start saying, well, Paul, you know, he really wasn't one of the 12. He wasn't with Jesus during the earthly ministry. Uh, Paul didn't get any training. He wasn't in Jerusalem, but, but et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that explains why we get this biography that we're going to get uh, as we continue to study chapter 1 and 2. Uh, but what Paul is showing here in verse 1, right out of the shoot, is his apostolic authority. And that's one of the themes that I was talking about. We could spend all morning on this. It's going to come up over and over again as we go through. So let's just, let's just take our time and we'll, we'll, we'll just put on a thin layer of coat, this, uh, of paint this morning on that. Paul's establishing his authority. Notice he calls himself an apostle. Now, there's, apostle can mean two things. You know, uh, there's, a, there's a narrow meaning of the word apostle. There's a broad meaning of the word apostle. Um, one lexicon puts it this way. Uh, there's a not-so-extraordinary status, and there's an extraordinary status. Now, may, who, who would be under the not-so-extraordinary status? All of us are apostles in the sense that we're all sent. To be an apostle is to be someone who has been sent. Christ is sending all of us into the world to reflect his glory and his love, right? So in this sense, we're all sent. But we're not sent in an extraordinary way, meaning that we're not busy writing the New Testament, are we? Paul's an author of a significant portion of the New Testament. That's extraordinary status. We could think of it in our minds if it's helpful Paul is an apostle with a capital A, whereas the rest of us are apostles with a lowercase a, if that makes any sense. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean that, Paul, that God shows partiality. He doesn't. It just means that he's sending Paul in this unique way with this status. Notice Paul said he's not been sent from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Here's a reference to Christ's resurrection. That's another theme. There's resurrection. And what's interesting about this is Paul is called by the risen Christ. He's called by the risen Christ, and he is called directly by Christ. In other words, he's not called by a group of people in Jerusalem. He's not called, you know, if I, if I think of my own ordination um, as an example. You know, I, I, I studied for a few years. I passed a bunch of exams. Don't ask me how we did it, but we did. And then, okay, the day came for ordination. And when that day came, okay, there, was, there were folks from the presbytery. There was a, a commission sent from the presbytery who were given authority to ordain me at an order of worship. 
So there were a group of people who had. So um, my, my status as a minister of the gospel came through men, is what I'm saying. There's one sense where, of course, we, you know, there's a calling. And, you know, in the, in the ARP church, how do we recognize a calling? Well, a person first has to be recognized by a local session and come under care of a local session as a student of theology. And only then can he be sent to a presbytery and be recognized as a student of theology by a presbytery. One of the things we do, you can't just go get a degree and get in. That's not going to work because everybody wants to see what kind of character Everybody wants to see, okay, is there a pattern of ministry going on? Is the person already ministering? How is the local congregation viewing that person? All these steps have to be taken place. But the point in all of this is, it's from men. Paul is called, some of you know his calling, he's called on the Damascus Road. Jesus blinds him with his glory and calls him directly. And this is where Paul's authority is resting. You notice in verse 2, he says, and all the brothers who are with me. Now, why mention the brothers? And of course, some of you will have a footnote after brothers. And if you look down in the margin of the footnote, it'll say sisters too. The SV has a footnote there. Um, Paul's adding credibility. Where he's talking about authority in verse 1, he's talking probably more so about credibility in verse 2. I think what Paul wants to do here is he wants to show that he's not just one of those theologians who is, you know, generally orthodox but has a few quirks. Those of you who read, I know some of you are smiling because those of you who like to read theology could think of a few names. I'm thinking of a few names right now. I'm not going to mention any names, but I'm thinking of a few names who are very helpful on some subjects, but they've got some quirky theology in the area of other subjects. So I'm always a little careful about recommending them. They can be really solid in one area, but they're a little quirky in some other areas. Paul's making it clear that's not the case with him because here are the brothers and sisters with him and they're in agreement with what he is writing. They're not writing, but they're in agreement with what is being written. Does that, does that make sense to you? So he's, and it, notice he says to the churches of Galatia. Now here's another hotbed subject. And the question is, who are the Galatians? Is anybody familiar with that argument? Does anybody know about the north and southern views and all that stuff? Does anybody know about all that stuff? All right. I don't want to get bogged down on it because I want to get to exclusivity this morning. But let me just say this. First of all, um, Galatia in the first century could mean two things. We could make it really simple and say it could be speaking of people in the north or people in the south. And it's the context that would determine the two. Now, the problem is the context of Galatians isn't all that decisive as to whether Paul is speaking about northern uh, Galatia, the northern uh, province of Galatia, if you will, or those towns in the south that we read about in Acts chapter 13, for example, of Lystra and Derby and Iconium and Pisidia and Antioch. Um, it, are, is, uh, is Paul talking about those cities in the south or is he talking about the, the north? Now, you'll be happy to know that when you go, when, when we pass away from this life and we go before God's bar, but God is not going to say, tell me, you have a northern view or a southern view of the book of Galatians and our salvation is going to depend on whether we took a northern view or a southern view. And that's not going to be the case. Uh, in fact, for the, for the most part, there's only a couple of places in Galatians where that's really going to matter. I want to comfort you there. But again, if you're looking at the commentaries and you're opening up the commentaries, you'll probably find at least a paragraph about that uh, in regards to um, 
the northern view and the southern view. Uh, I always take the southern view. I'm not going to be dogmatic about it, but I've always taken the southern view. And as one scholar has put it, Douglas Moo says, you know, when you weigh the evidence and the scales and you put the northern view on one side and you put the southern view on the other side, the scale does seem to tip a little bit to the south. That's how close and how complicated the arguments are. We're not going to spend, I don't think it would be edifying. Someone would be happy to know we're not going to go into all those things this morning. I didn't even come prepared to do that. But I just want to let you know that they're there and they exist. Now, if you look at verse 3, Paul is saying grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what's Paul saying there? He's not just simply giving pleasantries here. He's not simply saying, you know, like sometimes when, I, when I'm writing to someone, I haven't written to them in a long time, or I'm sending an email or something, or a text message, I'll say something like, I hope this note finds you well. But many of you do the same thing, right? That's a pleasantry that you put at the beginning. And this can sound to us like a pleasantry, but there's a lot going on here, way beyond a pleasantry. Paul is saying grace to you. Now, what exactly is grace? Grace is God's favor being extended towards those who deserve his wrath. God's favor being extended to those who deserve his wrath. If we got what we deserve, like everyone's talking about how we hear so much in our culture about we deserve this and we deserve that and we deserve this. There's one thing that we do deserve. We deserve what? God's wrath, of course. And what is grace? Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Grace is being spared. We do want to hold on to that as we come to the subject of exclusivity. We're going to return to that because notice what comes afterwards. It's peace. Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of the Father. Now, what is Paul talking about? He's talking about the cross. What happens at the cross? Jesus dies on the cross. To do what? Now, most of the time when we're talking about this, we're talking about Jesus dying on the cross to divert God's wrath from all those who put their faith and trust in him, right? God is just. God is giving us a Savior to deliver us from his wrath. We're told in John chapter 3 that as unbelievers, God's wrath is upon us. But the moment we put our faith and trust in Jesus, what happens? God has punished Jesus for our crimes. Therefore, our, our, our guilt, our, our sins are, are, are placed on Christ, and he suffers the penalty we deserve. And this turns his wrath away from us, which now brings in its wake peace, peace with God. Now, that'll feed us on a Sunday morning. It feeds you on Monday morning, too, so don't forget it tomorrow morning. It works on Monday mornings as well, okay? But you can wake up tomorrow morning. If you're in Christ Jesus, you can wake up tomorrow morning on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday, regardless of what kind of week you have, and you have just as much peace then as you have right now. And this peace, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to go one step further with this because this comes really important when we start thinking about exclusivity. This peace flows over into not just peace between us and God, but it flows over into peace with one another. I mean, we were joking and laughing a little bit ago, and I do think Joanne's going to kill me, I'm afraid. I just whispered to Tammy, I said, I think Joanne's going to kill me, I think she is going to kill me. I deserve it, I really do. Um, but we can joke and we can laugh and we can do all these things because why? We have peace. We have peace with God. And that peace with God flows forth 
And, and, and I want to I hope to have time this morning to explain how that works. Because Christ has given himself for our sins, okay, to deliver us from God's wrath. But look at verse 4. To deliver us from the present evil age. Now, I don't think I have to spend a lot of time on our present age to say that it's evil. If, if, if anyone needs any commentary on the present evil age, just watch the news tonight. And watch it tomorrow night. And watch it the night after. And you'll get all the commentary that you need. In fact, you only need tonight to do it. Um, plenty of things will go on. I don't know what will be on the news tonight, but I guarantee it's going to make my case. That this, that this current age is a evil age. There's no question. There's evil going on all over the place. And the news is going to be covering some of it. Um, so Jesus has come to deliver us from that. According to the will of God the Father. And then Paul breaks into this doxology. What is a doxology? Notice he says, To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The Greek word for glory is doxa. That's why we call it doxology. It's a word of praise. There's a song that we sometimes sing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. It's called the doxology. It's a word of praise. It's a word of praise. Paul's breaking forth into this word of praise. Now, I've raised through a number of really big issues. We're going to have time to look at each one of these issues as we go along um, so that we could get to verses 6 through 9. And I really want to take this up. Notice in verse 6, Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Now, first of all, Paul's astonished. He is surprised. He has planted these churches. He hasn't been gone very long. And all of a sudden, he's hearing about people defecting to a different gospel. Now, notice that he is equating the embracing of a different gospel as being one and the same as turning your back on him who called us in the grace of Christ. You see that very clearly in verse 6? I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. You're deserting the Father by turning to a different gospel. What's Paul making it clear here? He's making it clear there's only one gospel is what he's making it clear here. There is one gospel. In fact, he gives us clarity in verse 7. He says not that there is another one. He doesn't want to be misunderstood. In making these claims and saying what he is saying, he does not want anyone to misunderstand him as saying, well, there's potentially some other Gospels that could lead to the same place. Now I think we're starting to understand what exclusivity is about. The claim that there's only one way of salvation. That there's one exclusive way and one only to get to the Father. Paul says, there are some, verse 7, who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now, here he's telling us something that's uh, to me, is very frightening. Because what he is saying is a distortion of the gospel is another gospel. Isn't he? A distortion of the gospel is another gospel. And to embrace that other gospel is to turn your back on the Father. And if you look at verses 8 and 9, it, it gets scarier. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. 
Well, some of you are well aware of the Greek word that's translated a curse there. What is it? I mean, some of you know what it is, don't you? Yes, Alex, I've read his lips. It's anathema. That's a word I don't think we should use. What does anathema mean? To be anathematized means to fall under the eternal condemnation of God. What is Paul saying? If anyone distorts the gospel, let him fall under the eternal condemnation of God. In case he wasn't clear the first time, notice what he does in verse 9. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be what? Now, Paul doesn't have a stuttering problem. Why is he saying this twice? Quite frankly, I find these verses to be really scary, especially as someone who's, who's teaching the gospel all the time. I mean, we need to go to great lengths. We need to go to great lengths to make sure we get this right, don't we? Because what's at stake? You've heard me say many times that a bad preacher can do more damage to you than a bad surgeon. You've heard me say that before. What's the worst thing that a surgeon can do to you ultimately is take your life or maim you permanently in this life? What can a bad preacher do to you? He can wreck your soul for eternity. That makes sense. That's what's being said. So here we are on the subject of exclusivity. What is Paul saying? Paul's saying there's only one way. Now, why do we need to take a minute and talk about this? We need to take a minute and talk about this because our current culture finds this repugnant. If you share the gospel much at all, it's only going to be a matter of time before someone's going to come to you and they're going to say something like this. And a lot of times they're very upset with you. They're going to say, what gives you... They might say this. They might say, what gives you the right to think that your gospel is correct and everyone else's is false? Or as it's been said to me sometimes, what makes you think your Bible is the right Bible and everyone else's Bible is the wrong Bible? Now, how should we respond to that? I, you know, I, I want to say this from the start. Don't respond by getting mad. Please. One thing that I think we, we, we've got to learn how to do is we've got to learn how to be good listeners. And what is a good listener? A good listener, this is what a good listener is not. A good listener is not someone who's thinking about what they're going to say to the person while they're still talking to you. If that's what we do, these people probably aren't likely to come back and talk to us again because it's not going to be a very positive experience for them. No, on the contrary, a good listener is just what good listeners suggest. You listen very carefully to what the, where they're coming from and understand that where they're coming from, they really are experiencing anger. They really are frustrated. They really are angry. And why are they angry? I can think of one particular time when someone came to me and he was angry with me. And he wanted to know why I was trying to convert people to Christianity. And what gave me the right to convert people to Christianity? What makes me think that my message is so much better than everyone else's message? And I could tell when he was talking to me, I could tell that what he was really pointing to and what he really thought I was doing was putting my own personal opinion way up here above everyone else's. And a lot of times that's what people really mean when they do that. Now, let's think about it. If, if I'm running around giving everybody my personal opinion and I'm, and, I, and I'm suggesting that my personal opinion on this is better than your opinion, 
And you need to jettison your opinion. You need to throw it overboard. And you need to come and take my opinion. That's arrogant. Well, that's exactly what I was being accused of being. Don't get mad because they really are experiencing frustration. They don't understand what you're doing. They really don't. I would say, I don't think anyone's ever, I've had this happen to me numerous times. I don't think in one single case the person really understood what I was doing until I shared with them what I was doing. And I think one, one thing that goes a long ways in diffusing the hostility is to say, oh boy, you've misunderstood me. If you think what I'm sharing here is my opinion, then I'm with you. I'm on board 100%. I don't have any, I don't have any right to share my opinion. Uh, my, and that's why I say to you all the time, I don't want you, I will never ask you to believe anything I can't show you from scripture. And when I'm offering you my opinion, I'll tell you. How many times have you heard me say that? One of the reasons I say that is because of these conversations that I've had. No, this is not my opinion that I'm advocating here. Let me tell you what I'm advocating here. I'm advocating to you a message that I didn't write. It's a message that Jesus has written. It's the message that Jesus has proclaimed. And why am I trying to convert people? I didn't take this upon myself to go and do. Jesus has commanded me to do this. This is why we do this, because Jesus has commanded us to do this. Now, what do you suppose a follow-up to that is like? A lot of times people will say, well, I think religion needs to be done away with. I just think it needs to be. How many have heard that before? I know a lot of you have. That's as, that's as common as the cold. Um, that in our current culture. Now, why would someone say, I think religion should be done away with? Well, because they're looking at the history. And religions, religions are divisive. Right? They're divisive. And especially when people begin to get a sense of superiority. There's a sense of superiority that can come upon us, you know, if we think we're right and everyone else is wrong, we can get a little chip on our shoulder and kind of cast these errors of superiority over everyone else. And what is that ultimately going to do? That's going to lead to oppression and violence. So you'll oftentimes hear religion is divisive, it's oppressive, and it's violent. It can lead to violence. I'm not a historian, but I wouldn't have any problems looking back in history and pointing to blatant examples of this. So how should we respond? Sometimes people will come to you and they, and, and they don't want to offend you, but they do want to, they do want to voice frustration with you and say, they, they might start with religion. They'll say religion needs to be done away with. We just need to do, do away with religion because it's, because it's oppressive, because it's divisive, because it's, it's, it can lead to violence. We just need to do away with it. We need to get rid of it. And then as you talk to them, they might say, what, you know, what makes you think you have the truth? They'll, they'll begin, because if we're not careful, we can cast these airs of superiority to one another. We can. Sometimes we do, unfortunately. Now, what do we say to this? How do we respond to this? That religion can be divisive. Is there truth to that? 100%. What about Christianity? Is Christianity divisive? 100%. We'll say, well, could you explain that? Well, as you read through the Bible, you read about people that believe and people that don't believe, right? That's a divide. When people talk about, when Jesus talks about sheep and goats, that's division. When Jesus talks about, okay, the one who believes has eternal life. He who believes me has eternal life. Okay, that's division. Baptism. 
What does baptism do? It puts a mark on someone's soul that what? Sets them apart. What's it mean to be holy? It means to be set apart. You can just go down the list. We could talk about this all day, all afternoon. We won't, but we can't. About being divisive. So we have to say yes to that. What about oppressive? What can be oppressive if we, if we have a sense of superiority? But I want to, I want to, here's what, here's what, I think the message we need to communicate to people is this. You know, I'm not, a, I'm not an expert in world religions. But I do know a little bit about world religions. And I also know what experts on world religions say. And these are experts who are not Christians. And what they say, people who's, that's a whole field of study that would require someone to give their life to that field of study to be an expert in that. There's a lot of world religions out there. But one of the, the, the experts in world religions will tell you that Christianity is unique in this respect. It has the Creator coming in the person of Christ in order to make atonement for sin so that sinners can be brought in to have peace with God and a peace with God that flows out forward to all other people. You see, that is the unique thing. And, and, these, and these writers don't believe Christianity, but they're getting it right as they describe it. So when the gospel is properly preached... When it's properly preached, what does it preach? Starts with bad news. What's the bad news? We're all on a level playing field here. There is no superiority. We are all spiritually bankrupt. Now, what right does one person who's spiritually bankrupt have to lord it over the next guy who's spiritually bankrupt? So it levels the playing field. This is the bad news. The bad news is we all need a savior. The good news is God has given us a way. Why would God give us 50 different ways? He's given us one way. Something has to be done with the guilt. This is one of the things that's unique about Christianity is it deals with the guilt. Most world religions are performance-based. And these false teachers are leading the Galatians in that area. They're leading them to become performance-based. But Christianity, Jesus, teach, Jesus extends this offer. He says, listen, quit your working, come to me in faith. And I will change you from the inside out. You will have peace with God, and it's a peace with God that is going to extend to peace with everyone else. So what do we say about oppression? When the gospel is properly preached, it starts with the bad news, puts everyone on a level playing field, then extends the good news that there's mercy in Christ Jesus for those who will come to him. But the end result... It's not a feeling of superiority. When we start feeling superior to people who don't believe the way we do, we're starting, to, we're starting to act a lot like the Pharisee who goes into the temple with the tax collector and says to God, I thank you, you've not made me like other men. You haven't made me like these neighbors I got down the street. And if we're not careful, we can find a Pharisee rearing his or her ugly head in our hearts, can't we? So easily. We've got to catch that because that, that's, that's not the gospel. In fact, that's a whole different thing than the caricature that, that Charles Spurgeon says. You know, what is evangelism supposed to be like? Not somebody coming in who, I've got all the answers and you don't have any of the answers and I'm smart and you're stupid and you need to do what you need to be like. See, this, I think, the errors that sometimes we cast to people. 
Uh, where the white, where the knight in white shining armor is going to come in and show everybody their place and show everybody how. No, see, that, that's a whole different thing than what Spurgeon says is evangelism is one blind beggar showing another blind beggar where he can find food. That's Christianity, isn't it? You see, there's peace in that. There's a level playing field in that. There's no room for superiority in that. So in terms of oppression, when the gospel is properly preached and the gospel is properly received, there will be no oppression. In fact, this is the only, this is the only religion that actually will extend love. Now, two, two things I want to share and we'll wrap up here. Uh, some, some have said, listen, okay, all religions are divisive. Religions, um, they can cause people to feel superior to one another. Therefore, they can be oppressive. Um, therefore, they can, uh, they can lead to violence. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to ban all religion. Governments, there's governments that have taken that position. And they say, we're going to abandon all religion. There's not going to be any religion. Does that work? The answer is that positively will never work. Why will it not work? Let's first define religion. What is religion? Sometimes people will come to me and say, uh, Pastor, um, listen, I'm not real religious here. Um, but I would like you, if you, if you find some time, I'd like you to pray for my wife or I'd like you to pray for my daughter. Like, now, what's a person saying? When a person comes to me and says that, what are they saying? They're, actually, I find it to be so honorable in what they're saying because they're demonstrating great integrity. They don't want you to think that there's someone that they're not. They want to make it really clear. I'm not a guy. I'm not the guy that's up every morning reading his Bible. I'm not the guy that's praying all that much. I don't go to church. I'm not real religious. That's what, that's what he means or she means by that. But what's in the back of that? What's behind that? How would we define religion? I always like to define religion in my mind as religion is a conviction to life's most important questions. It's a conviction of life's most important questions. For example, religion is answering the question of who we are, where we came from, who made us or did anyone make us, what's expected of us, where are we going, what is our purpose, what is right, what is wrong. How we answer these questions form our religion. These are our religious convictions. Now, if a government says to all of us, there's going to be, you take all your religions, whatever they are, you're going to get rid of them, and we're not going to have them in the public square. We're not going to have them in this country. Okay, that won't work because you can't get rid of your convictions because God has put eternity into our hearts. We're still going to struggle to answer these questions, and the answers that we give to these questions are going to be our convictions, Right? So you, you can't get around it. And besides that, the government says it's going to ban government is going to tell you how to answer all those questions. So it inevitably, inevitably, what does it end up doing? It inevitably ends up setting up its own exclusive religion. So it ends up doing exactly what it's telling you not to do. Right? There's no way around it. How about the United States? What has the United States done? Well, the United States has gone about it a little bit differently. It said, you can believe anything you want, but you better keep it to yourself. You keep it to yourself. You keep it to yourself. It's not to be brought into the public square. And it's amazing how, how, how we've so bought into that. 
is a lot of people do think it's wrong to speak about religion in public. And why? One of the reasons is because we've so bought into that. That doesn't belong in the public square. Okay, if we're all going to take our religion, we're all going to take it home, and we're going to keep it in the closet or wherever, how are we going to answer life's questions in the public square? Because the state is busy answering these questions in the public square. It's another exclusive claim. Like, for example, who are you? Okay, our government is very busy answering that question. And they're not answering it in a Christian way. So what are they doing? They're telling you to take your religion and keep it to yourself. And when you come out of your house or out of your closet or wherever it is, you're going to follow our religion because we are going to dictate to you the answers to life's questions. Does that make sense? So there's no way around this area of exclusivity. There's really no way around it. But back to, and to close on this, back to what Paul is telling us here. What is Paul making clear here? He's making it clear here that there's only one way, there's only one way to salvation. Now, by what authority does he make this claim? It's the authority of the resurrected Christ. And it's the same authority that we have. You heard me say this. You've heard me say this for the last couple of weeks. Why would, why would, why do I believe what I believe? I believe what I believe because of Jesus. You remember my one word answer to that. Now, why do I believe Jesus? Another one word answer. What is my, why do I believe Jesus? What's my one word answer? It's resurrection. It's resurrection. What does the resurrection prove? The resurrection proves that Jesus is who he says he is. But when we go forward, as we close here, as we leave this place, how should we leave? I, we should leave this place just as Spurgeon suggested. Well, who are we? We're blind beggars in one sense. We have received mercy not on the basis of any of our works. And that's one thing that's really going to become clear as Paul develops Galatians. There isn't a single one of us that can boast. We cannot boast. Save on what Christ has done for us. Therefore, there's no room for superiority to be in our hearts towards our fellow man and fellow woman. Amen? I like the closing hymn. What's that Jesus paid it all, I think. That'll work. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, and we praise you for the fact that you did. You paid it all. Where were we when the payment was being made? Where were we when you were dying on the cross? Well, Father, we thank you and praise you, O Lord, that you have come. You are the Savior of the world. You proved that with your resurrection. And, oh, Father, we pray, Lord, as we go forth from this place, Lord, that we would not go forth from this place as a, as a Pharisee, oh, Father, that we'd go forth from this place with some kind of feeling of, of a knight in white shining armor or as we go forth from this place making everybody our personal ministry projects or we'd go forth from this place, Lord, uh, with this feeling of this chip on our shoulder with a feeling of superiority. Forgive us, oh, Father, when we've done things like that. Oh, Father, we pray that we'd go forth from this place bragging about nothing but you, oh, Lord, and what you have done and how your resurrection proves you are who you say you are and your teaching is exactly that gospel truth. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.